Uh, I want to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. And uh, I could entitle today's message, maybe better should entitle today's message, What Could Have Been. What Could Have Been. But you'll see the title there, When God's Ways and Man's Ways Collide. We'll pick up reading at verse 28, and as we, as we do so, I want you to, to realize that verse 28 begins the fulfillment, really, of what started in Luke's gospel back in chapter 9 in verse 51. In chapter 9, verse 51 of Luke's gospel, Luke shows Jesus steadfastly setting his face toward Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him there. John's gospel, of course, records for us several of the visits that Jesus made to Jerusalem, most of his ministry in the area of Galilee, and he would go down to Jerusalem to take part in the different feasts and festivals and go eat up each year for Passover. Uh, but Luke 9.51 begins that final journey of Jesus toward Jerusalem, uh, knowing what was going to happen there, not their acceptance of him, but their rejection of him. Let's pick up in verse 28. Luke says, and when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you untying it, you shall say, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road and... As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Father, I pray that as we read this text that 
we would understand the magnitude of the moment when we encounter Jesus, when we hear the good news. It's a dreadful thing to reject the Savior. A blessed thing to receive Him. Lord, this text is a reminder to us as well that you do not always work according to our immediate expectations. But you have the longer view in mind. You don't judge or work simply by the day, but in light of eternity instead. We thank you that your ways are higher than our ways and your thoughts higher than our thoughts. We thank you for what this week stands for on the church calendar. That Jesus died for our sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Lord, I pray that there would not be one one person hearing me today that would reject Or turn away from the good news of Christ being presented to them. May we not be like those in Jerusalem on this first Palm Sunday. Open your word to our understanding. Through the power of your spirit, apply it to our hearts. May we be a changed people and an expectant people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Today I want to take a break from the symbols and images of the book of Revelation and study together one of the traditional New Testament texts on the events surrounding Palm Sunday. But now of course In speaking of symbols and images, this text has its own set of symbols and images. And we'll see those as we progress through it. Today's referred to as Palm Sunday. It describes that day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on on a donkey in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And the crowds were shouting in celebration... And they were laying their cloaks and branches in Jesus' pathway. Now interestingly, all of the Gospels record this event. It was important for all of the Gospel writers to show Jesus officially being presented as the King of Israel. But also to follow that up by showing that they were going to reject their King. I'm reminded of what John 1 tells us that Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. You see, Jesus didn't act the way they thought he would act once he entered into the city. They were expecting an immediate kingdom and a throne to be established right there on the spot. But God had bigger things in mind. There will be an earthly kingdom eventually established and we'll come to that as a matter of fact later on in our series in the book of Revelation. But first Jesus had to be the suffering servant who would give his life 
for our sin. They could not see or accept that at the moment. And so by the end of the week, those who had cried, Hosanna, on Palm Sunday, they were crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. By the end of the week, that same crowd was crying out, crucify him, crucify him. Now, each gospel writer has different nuances to the day that he records. Matthew and Mark, for instance, tell us about the crowds cutting branches and laying them on the road. John fills in the details and lets us know that they were palm branches. Luke's gospel is perhaps the most detailed. Luke tells us that the religious authorities told Jesus that he needed to rebuke the people and make them stop saying what they were saying and stop doing what they were doing. Luke alone also tells us about the city of Jerusalem coming into Jesus' view and when Jesus saw the city, he immediately broke down and began weeping for them. Now Palm Sunday is the first day of Passion Week on the religious calendar. Passion Week refers to the week of suffering by Jesus with of course him being rejected and crucified by week's end. Following the traditional calendar for Passion Week we're told that on Monday Jesus cleansed the temple. On Tuesday he encountered difficulties and controversies with the religious leaders. On Wednesday, apparently he enjoyed a a very important day of rest. On Thursday, we see the preparation for the Passover. And that night, Jesus is arrested in the garden and subjected all night long to a mock trial and an illegal trial. On Friday, the trial is complete, issuing in Jesus' crucifixion. On Saturday, Jesus' lifeless body rests in the tomb. And on Sunday, Jesus was raised after three days in the tomb. You see, folks, in the Jewish mindset of things, any portion of a day counted for the entire day. And that's why we say after three days, Jesus rose Whereas in reality, he had probably only been in the tomb for about 36 hours. As Dr. D.A. Carson writes about in his commentary on Matthew, many people have tried to come up with other fanciful things in a schedule to move the crucifixion back to maybe Wednesday or even Thursday. But as he notes, uh, those arguments are not very convincing and it's best to stick with the traditional week. Now today as we see the events of Palm Sunday, we we will learn how God seldom works according to how we might think. But folks, while God doesn't work according to what we might expect or what we might think, nonetheless, God goes beyond our expectations. We might not see it at the moment, but God goes far beyond our expectations. We may not like what we encounter at the moment, 
But we need to understand that God is always working his work. I think the classic biblical illustration of this would be Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph was put in prison as an innocent man and he spent many years in that prison cell and yet in the end God exalted Joseph to second in command in Egypt and through Joseph God spared the Jewish people of famine and starvation. You see God had bigger things in mind. And that's exactly what we see in Luke chapter 19. God had bigger things in mind than what the people were immediately expecting. Now that can be one of the hardest things for us to understand at any given moment in our lives because we want God to do certain things right now. Why won't God fix all of my predicaments right now? Why won't God work in the life of my parent or my spouse or my child? Why won't God fix my work situation and make it to where I have a better boss and going to work every day would be easier? Why won't God take care of all of my situations right now? That's what we want. And what we need to understand is that God has eternity in mind. Here we see God working in a way that far surpassed anything that the people were expecting. On this day they were casting palm branches and outer garments on the road before Jesus and they were shouting, Hosanna, which means Lord, save us now, save us now. It was a great day and at the same time it was also a sad and a tragic day. Now let's see some principles out of this text that I want to glean today. First of all, I want you to notice with me that God's ways are higher than our ways. As God said in Isaiah 55 verses 8 and 9, He said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Aren't you glad of that, that God's thoughts and God's ways are higher than our ways? Now as we think about what all was happening this day in Luke 19, I want you to understand something of the preparations that were being made. Jesus had been in and around Jericho. And in Jericho he had met Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus had experienced a glorious salvation. Luke 19.10, following up the, the Zacchaeus story, Luke 19.10 gives us the theme of Luke's gospel that Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And so we see that Jesus is on a mission that is much more comprehensive, much larger than the people understood. And as he's nearing Jerusalem, when he gets to Bethany and then to Bethpage, he sends two disciples to make arrangements for the triumphal entry. They are to fetch a donkey. Now, a donkey was an animal fit for a king to ride on in Jesus' day. 
It was symbolic of a king coming in peace. I think of 1 Kings 1, when David is on his sickbed and he wants his son Solomon to be the one anointed as the next king of Israel and he has his servants go and take his very own donkey uh, to Solomon and put Solomon, his son, on it and march Solomon through the streets. But also, this is fulfillment of prophecy. You see in Zechariah 9, 9, the Bible says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so great preparations are being made. And they would have understood that. Immediately we move from the preparations to the celebration. The people of that day understood the the symbolism of a king on a donkey. And so what do they do? They begin casting their garments on the roadway before Jesus. Again, I think of an Old Testament passage that comes to mind. In 2 Kings 9.13... When Jehu, when Elisha's servants went down and anointed Jehu as the next king, they took off their cloaks, their garments, and they spread their garments on the staircase before Jehu. It was the equivalent of us today rolling out the red carpet for somebody. Now John tells us that they were also casting palm branches in the path of Jesus and the branches were a sign of peace and deliverance. The palm branch is a sign of peace and deliverance went all the way back to the coinage in the period of time between the Old and the New Testament when when the Jews uh, uh, during the time of the Maccabean revolt rose up and they defeated Antiochus IV Epiphanes and they reconsecrated the temple. Their coins from that period of time had images of palm branches on them. A sign of deliverance. And the peace that follows. And so folks, there's no mistaking what is taking place here. When you put together the riding on a donkey, the palm branches being spread, the garments being spread, Jesus is presenting himself to Jerusalem as her rightful king. And everybody in that day would have understood that. Alfred Edersheim, the great Hebraist and scholar on the life of Jesus, believes that what was going on here too was not just simply one parade of people, one wave of people, but all along this journey as Jesus was leaving Bethany and Bethpage and on his way to Jerusalem, all along the way, like choruses in a hymn, there were new waves of people coming out and waving the branches and throwing their cloaks down before him and saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. How wonderful it must have been to be in the crowd that day. But then in addition to the preparation and the celebration, we see the lamentation of Jesus. 
as the road from Bethpage over the Mount of Olives opens up, it's said that you have a spectacular view of the city of Jerusalem. I can't wait to see that in December. How wonderful it must have been to be in the crowd that day. And and here's Jesus. He's arriving in the city. And as he beholds the city, we're expecting something different. But the text says that Christ begins weeping. Now folks, how unusual this must have seemed because here you have the joy of the crowd, you have the celebration, you have all the shouts of Hosanna. It appears like it's going to be a coronation day and here is the Lord of glory. He's weeping. What we have in Luke 19 is misplaced expectations. The Jews were fully expecting Jesus to march into Jerusalem and gloriously deliver them from the oppressive government of Rome and then sit upon the throne of David forever, ruling the earth from Jerusalem. Even Jesus' own disciples had these same notions. You'll recall how earlier on in the Gospels how Jesus as he began preparing his disciples said okay we're going to Jerusalem now and I want you to know that when I get there the Son of Man is going to be rejected and he's going to be crucified and the disciples led by Simon Peter saying not so Lord as long as we are around that is never ever going to happen and Jesus looked at Simon Peter and said Get thee behind me, Satan, because you are not minding the things of God, but the things of men. They're expecting a war to break out. But Jesus is coming to secure a bigger kind of peace. And everything in his actions showed that. You see, for a king to come riding on a donkey was a symbol of peace. The stallion was a sign that he was coming to conquer in war. You would almost expect by giving all of what the people were looking forward to that it was about to happen, you would almost expect somebody in the crowd to come riding up beside Jesus on a big stallion and look over at Jesus and say, Jesus, we need to change animals. You need to be on the stallion because we're fixing to go in and have a war. But he's going in on a pea, uh, on a donkey for peace. You see, before there can be peace on earth, there has to be peace between men and God. And that was what Christ was going to secure there on the cross. Man thinks of the temporal. Man lays up treasure for himself on this earth. Man thinks of his food today and his bank account tomorrow. But as Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, he was thinking of bigger things. They wanted a quick fix. They wanted Rome gone. Rome was oppressive. And they just wanted Rome out of there. 
And they were wanting that quick fix. They wanted Rome defeated. But God thinks of the eternal. Folks, it's not that God doesn't care about the temporal. He does. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 25 and following, He said that we don't have to worry about our daily necessities because God cares about those daily necessities too. God cares about temporal things, but He doesn't want our ultimate focus on those temporal things. Jesus said, what's it going to profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his very own soul? And so as Jesus rode into Jerusalem that day, his mind was not on setting up a temporal earthly peace that would do nothing more to address the larger issue. Jesus was thinking of the larger need of mankind. In fact, that's the chief reason for which he had come. Galatians 4.4, Paul says, In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born under the law, born of a virgin, to redeem those who are under the law. That's God's higher purposes. And that's what Jesus Christ was about that day. And everybody in the crowd, although there was a a mood of fanfare and festival in the air, everybody missed it. They missed it entirely. But not only do we need to see that God's purposes are higher than, than man's, But we need to see that God's ways are holier than man's ways as well. The cross is at the center of God's ways. Jesus came to die on a cross for us to reconcile us to God. I want you to turn with me back to Isaiah 53 and begin reading with me in verse 3 of Isaiah 53. And we'll read down through verse 7 because here we see God's holy purposes. It says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men had hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Folks, in his first advent, this was the holier purpose that Christ was about. There will come a day for an earthly kingdom, but as Isaiah said, when the the servant came, the great servant of God, he would come first of all to suffer on your behalf and my behalf, to die for us, to die for our sin, to do for us what you and I can never do for ourselves. He came to take care of our sin problem. 
You see, oftentimes we don't understand our own needs. The Jews of that day, as they were going into Jerusalem that day, they saw themselves as having one set of needs, and they didn't understand what their needs really were. Their needs were to be put right with God. That was, that was to be the priority. And it took the cross to do that. Isaiah says he was despised and forsaken of men. Think of all those times in the Gospels that men turned against Jesus. The, de- uh, the, the Pharisees, in fact, said he had a devil. In fact, Jesus' own siblings did not receive him until after the resurrection. He was despised. Remember in John 6 when Jesus said, I'm the bread of life who's come down out of heaven? Unless a man eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood, he has no part in the kingdom of God. And the multitudes that day thought he was talking about cannibalism or something. And the Bible says they were offended and they turned away from him. They despised him. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, Are you too going to turn away? He was despised. He was despised and rejected. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Everything you and I go through in life, those valleys that we walk through, those trials and tribulations that we go through, those dark moments of life because of the incarnation, guess what? Jesus understands. He's our sympathetic high priest because he went through all of those dark moments of life also He was acquainted with grief just like we are and yet without sin. But look beginning at verse 4. The picture becomes clear. He was to blame for none of it. None of his suffering was because of his sin because he was sinless. Verse 4 says, our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The uh, chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging we're healed. Where are we in this picture? Verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned our own way. Folks, given a choice, we choose our ways. We choose our plans above God's plans. That's our problem. That's the problem with humanity. But the Bible says the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. That's substitution. All through the Bible we see this concept of substitution. All of those lambs, all of those sheep that that the people of God would have to bring to the priest and the priest would would sacrifice those sheep and, and sprinkle the blood on the altar and on the Day of Atonement, of course, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and, and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. All of that pointed forward to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The fact that in Jesus Christ, the substitution to end all other substitutions would be made. That's what Isaiah is writing about. 
I think about F.B. Meyer and Mel Trotter and R.G. Lee, how they were walking along in a scorched field one day and they came to the body of a scorched bird. One of them kicked the bird over and when they did, when they, when they kicked the charred bird over, all of these little chicks came running out from underneath the bird. And they said, you know what that's a picture of? That's a picture of Jesus. Because that mother bird could have flown off. She could have spared her life. She could have gotten away. But for the sake of her chicks, she came down and she covered them. And she took all of the wrath of those flames that her chicks might have life. That's what took place at the cross. I like what Harold Wilmington says about this. Jesus took our hell that we might partake of his heaven. The blessed son of God became the son of man that sons of men might become sons of God. Verse 7 tells us how he took it. He took it silently during seven unfair, illegal trials. He never once tried to defend himself. Pilate finally said, I find no basis for a charge against him. He was innocent and the authorities knew it. And yet, he never ever tried to defend himself. Do you have any idea of how difficult that must have been? At least it would be for us. Because we want to defend ourselves. But Jesus took it all silently. Hebrews 12.4 says, For the joy set before him. Joy? Yes, joy. Not the joy of suffering, but the joy of knowing what the substitution and the suffering would do. It would reconcile men to a holy God. And so for the joy of having his children with him in heaven, for all of eternity, he endured the cross. He never opened his mouth. He never tried to escape. He could have. When Simon Peter took a sword out in the garden and cut off the ear of one of those men that have come to get him, Jesus said, Peter, put your sword back up. Don't you know that I could have called 12 legions of angels and they would have come and delivered me? He could have, but he didn't. He kept silent. Why? Because of his love. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God cares that much. Lynn Pryor, in an article for Leadership Magazine, gives the following account. From the year 1986 to 1990, Frank Reed was held hostage in a Lebanon cell. For months at a time, Reed was blindfolded, living in complete darkness or chained to a wall and kept in absolute silence. On one occasion, he was moved to another room and although blindfolded, he could sense others in the room. Yet it was three weeks before he dared peek out to discover he was chained next to Terry Anderson and Tom Sutherland. Although he was beaten, made ill, and tormented, what Reed felt most was the lack of anyone caring. He said in an interview with Time magazine, nothing I did mattered to anyone. I began to realize how withering it is to exist with not a single expression of caring around me. I learned one overriding fact, caring is a powerful force. If no one cares, you are truly alone. 
Well, folks, on Palm Sunday when Jesus began that short journey to Jerusalem, He did so with you and me in mind because He loves us, He cares for us. As 1 Peter 3.18 says, The just died for the unjust that He might bring us to God. That was the holier purposes of God that they didn't see. Now that brings us down to a third thing I want you to see today. Man's way, a man's challenge is to be in harmony with God's ways. Look back at verse 41 of our text today in Luke 19. Verse 41 says, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. That verse tells us as Jesus saw Jerusalem, he wept. You know why he wept? Because Jesus knew what was going to happen when he got into Jerusalem. When he didn't do everything the way they were expecting things to be done, by the end of the week, they were going to reject him and begin calling for his death, his crucifixion. They were going to reject him and because of that, not only would they fail to receive eternal life, but what they were doing there that week was going to end up destroying their city because he knew that once they rejected him, they were going to continue on and on and on looking for other messiahs down through the years who could overthrow Rome and they were going to continue picking fights with Rome on and on and on and finally in 70 AD under Titus the Roman troops came in and utterly destroyed the city you see Jesus knew all that was going to happen And it could have been so different for them. But he knew that they were going to reject him. He knew that they were going to force this issue with Rome. And when Titus came in, it said that he told his troops to exercise some degree of moderation. But Josephus tells us that Titus's troops were enraged because the city of Jerusalem put up such a good fight. They walled themselves in and kept the Romans out. And finally the Roman troops were able to batter down the walls and get in and when they got in they were full of of, of rage against the Jews and Josephus says 600,000 Jews were slaughtered in fact Josephus says the bloodshed was so great in the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD that you could literally see little streams of blood running in the streets of the city it was that bad And Jesus said not one stone is going to be left on another of the temple. They burned the temple and all the precious uh, items in there, the utensils, the the gold and so forth, it it melted and poured down between the the cracks of some of the stones and and the Romans took pry bars and they, they pried the stones apart to get that gold out. And so just as Jesus said, not one stone would be left upon another. Again, the sad part is it didn't have to be that way. 
He says in verse 44, You and your children within you, they'll not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. What if they would have come to Christ? What if they would have understood that God was sending a Messiah whose kingdom was not of this world? They would have been spiritually saved and they would have been physically saved as well. And that's why Jesus wept because it could have all been so different. Folks, let's bring it home to us. The Bible says there's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the ways thereof are the ways of death. Think about salvation. It makes sense to us that we ought to be able to save ourselves by our own good deeds. That makes perfect sense in human logic. If you go out on the streets of the city today and you conducted interviews and asked people what they would need to do to be at peace with God and be right with God and have the assurance of going to heaven when they die, chances are the majority of people that you would encounter would say you need to do a little bit more and you need to try a little bit harder. And if you're good enough, and have more checks in the good column when you die than checks in the bad column. Guess what? You make it to heaven. That's the way man thinks. And you look at religions around the world and that's pretty much what religions around the world are teaching. Just try a little harder, be a little more religious, be a little bit better, do the best you can and guess what? You'll make it one day. And tragically, you know what those people are going to do? They're going to miss what Jesus came to do. They're going to miss their Kairos moment. When Jesus said, you did not recognize the time of your visitation, that word time there is the Greek word Kairos. It's not Kronos time. Kronos time is calendar time or the time on your watch. But Kairos time refers to a moment of opportunity. A moment of opportunity that you have right now that five minutes from now you may not have. That's Kairos time. And Jesus said, Jesus wept because he said, You did not recognize your Kairos moment of visitation. The Savior was going into Jerusalem to die on the cross for their sins. And guess what? None of them could see it because they just had their minds on an immediate fix. And that was all. They were just looking for an earthly kingdom. And there are people today that the gospel is being preached. They take out their Bibles and read it. They hear messages maybe on the radio or TV. And, 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 and the message of salvation is being extended. And guess what? They miss it. Because they look past Christ and they're still trying to do it their way. Folks, when God's way and man's way collides, always go with God's way. 
The Bible says he who puts his trust in the Lord, he who puts his hope in the Lord will never be disappointed. The Bible says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and that even if we break just one commandment, we're guilty of breaking the whole. If I stood up here and took my Bible and ripped out one page of my Bible and crumpled it up and threw it away, uh, uh, as you looked at the big picture, it might not seem that I have done that much damage to the Word of God. But if you look at it from a different standpoint of view, I have degraded the integrity of the whole book by ripping out one page. And that's what we've done with the law of God. When we break one law, it's as though we have sinned against the whole if we were going to make it by our good works we'd have to be absolutely perfect, sinless and nobody is that way we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, the Bible says there is none righteous, no not one and so God makes salvation a matter of faith we look to the cross and the cross alone and what Jesus Christ did there for our benefit when he died in our place on the cross we look to Jesus and experience salvation it's the attitude, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. That's God's way. Don't miss it. Don't keep trying to do things your way. You'll miss it. You'll miss God's way. There are other people with their marriages, with their careers, with their finances. They're trying to do things their way instead of God's way and they're making an absolute mess out of their lives. And ladies and gentlemen, what we need to do is we need to wake up and we need to understand that God loves us and God's way is the only way for people to go. The answer is in Jesus Christ. Don't miss his visitation and why he came to this earth. If we discount him one bit, why in the world did Jesus need to come if we could make it on our own, our way? then we wouldn't have needed a Savior. But He sent a Savior, God in His sovereign wisdom and in His providential purposes sent us a Savior because a Savior is exactly who I need and who you need. The time of God's visitation came in Christ. They missed it. But the question for you and me today is, will you miss it? Don't miss it. If you miss it, you'll end up in an eternity without Christ. And you'll have all of eternity to dwell upon what could have been. Would you stand, please?
Maybe you're that one that needs to come forward and say, Pastor, I've been missing it. But I see. God, God's convicted me. I see that the way of salvation is only through Christ. I get it. And you want to come and surrender your life to the Lord. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe some others here going through other things in your life and you've been wringing your hands and trying things your way and ignoring God's way. Why don't you stop doing that today and put it into the hands of the Master. Say, God, I want to live life your way. Amen.